Well, if you have your Bibles to the book of Hebrews, uh, chapter number 7, I'm just going to read um, for us um, chapter number 7, and we'll read down to verse number 10. Um, let me back up to verse number 20 of chapter number 6, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, going on into heaven, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham appointed a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. But resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was, to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of his spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take a tithe from the people that is from their brothers, though these also are descendants from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descendant from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promise. It's beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. And in the one case, tithes are received by the mortal uh, in, in one case, ties are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives the ties, paid ties through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this day we can gather together, and what a joy it is to be in your house among your people. Pray that you would... Uh, just speak to us through this passage of Scripture this morning. Encourage us and help us lift our eyes on Christ. Just thinking of that song in Christ alone. What a joy it is to know you through your Son. And uh, so we just pray that you would help use me this morning. Speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. It's a very interesting passage of Scripture, both in studying and trying to explain it. I was thinking, uh, thinking this week how it is uh, today that we enter into the ministry. Those of, who have entered into the ministry is much different, I, I think, than we can see in the narrative for us. Uh, we feel a sense of call, God's call on our life, or maybe an urge to preach or a desire to, to be in that position. That's what the Bible says. They desire the office of a bishop, desire a good thing. Then we go off in, in some kind of training or discipleship, some maybe formal education or informal, however it is, but, but you go off to study and learn about God and God's ways, and, and in that process, you become strengthened in your faith. If you're going to say something, you ought to know what you have to say. You, you ought to know what you're saying anyway. Well, in that, you, you go before committees and boards and ordination councils, and they grill you and interrogate you. I'm so thankful for the generosity of the man who was over mine years ago. Uh, he was so gracious. Gave me the answers with the questions. I'm not sure you're supposed to do that, but he just said, do you believe that, brother? And I said, amen. Just uh, keep on preaching. You know. <laughs> 
And you go through this process, and, and, and at some point you, you follow God's doors that open up. A church recognizes those gifts in you and God's hand on your life, and, and so they invite you into a position of pastor or associate pastor, youth pastor, whatever it may be. And that's kind of the process in the modern day. I know it varies from person to person, so if you know of other people's story that differ, uh, then, then you know, maybe you can tell me later, I guess. And yet nowhere in that process do we look at a person's background in the sense of who his mom and dad were. We don't ask where he was born or, or what county or, or even what country, as it were, where they come from. And, and we don't look at those things like that. It's much different as we come to the Old Testament idea of priesthood. I know in one way the office functions differently as we see in the New Testament. We're not the same. I understand that. But, but when you come to speak about priests, especially the high priest or the priesthood in the Bible, in the Old Testament under the Mosaic Law, you, you come to this, this different understanding, reality that they were, they were only and, and foremost primarily from one tribe, that is the tribe of Levi. And God calls them out in Numbers chapter number 3. He calls them out unto himself. As we, uh, as we see in Numbers 3, he says to the children of Israel, to Moses, says, I have reserved Levi as my own possession, my own inheritance. And so instead of taking the firstborn of all the nation, he chooses that one tribe that they would serve him in that capacity. And when you see that, uh, mentioned in Deuteronomy as Moses reminds the children of Israel that the, the inheritance of Levi is much different than the inheritance of the rest of the nation. He reminds the nations to, or the, uh, the tribes to continue to bring their tithes to the, uh, to the priest because as he says in Deuteronomy 24, 27, he has no portion or inheritance with you. When you get over to Joshua and they begin splitting up the land, it is it is within the other tribes that the Levites are given cities, but they're not given land in the same capacity because they're called out by God for the service of God. More than just that, we see that it is primarily through Aaron and his descendants that he would call those to be priests. And, and in particular, the high priest, the line would go through Aaron and his descendants. And so ingrained in the Jewish um, uh, Old Testament or, or our Old Testament as it were that you see in Ezra chapter number 2 the, the children of Israel coming back from exile and, and there were some who, who considered themselves to be from the tribe of Levi and, and so would qualify to be priests and, and so as they come to Ezra and they, they were telling where they were from and who they belonged to they said show us your papers to see your genealogy. And so they bring out this genealogy. They could not prove that they were from Levi uh, and from Aaron. And the Bible says in verse 62, they sought their registration among those enrolled in the genealogies, but they were not found there, so they were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. So fundamentally, in the mind of, of our Old Testament, when you thought of kingship or ruling, you thought of the line of David. You thought of Judah. And likewise, when you thought of priesthood or the priest, you thought of Levi and Aaron in particular. So separated was the two. You see when the lines crossed uh, in the Old Testament, I'll give you two examples of this, that God's judgment 
uh, God's judgment was brought about. Saul being the first king of Israel in 1 Samuel chapter 13, verses 9 through 13, give an account as he waits on Samuel to offer up a sacrifice before he goes into battle and seek the will of God. Samuel, or Saul's impatient and he offers up a sacrifice himself. And, and you know how it is when you do something wrong, immediately you're found out. Samuel shows up and he says, what have you done this foolishly? You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. And he goes on and says, you have been rejected by God as king over Israel. That would again be repeated by Samuel. Isaiah, another godly king in Second Chronicles, chapter number 26, who was helped mightily by the Lord. And, and when he became strong, the scripture says he enters in boastfully and pridefully into the house of God to offer incense upon the altar. And the priests withstand him. They, they stand against him, a number of them. And it says in verse number 18, it is not for you, Isaiah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who were consecrated to burn incense. Go out of the sanctuary for you have done wrong and it will bring you no honor from the Lord God. In fact, we know Uzziah died in isolation, stricken with leprosy because he, he violated the command of God because he was not an appropriate priest. You see, in the, the Bible days, the priest would serve from a space about 25 years from the age of 50, or 25 to 50, and then the process would be passed along to the next generation, the next generation, and so on it goes. And it was not because they felt led into the calling or because they felt like they had particular gifts. And we do that in our day, and rightfully so, but, but it was much different. It wasn't because of their skillfulness or, or their connections, although I'm sure that has taken place, especially in Jesus' day, their connections. Or it wasn't because they were from a wealthy family and, and, and could buy their way into the priesthood. No, they would have had to have been Jewish, a Levite, a descendant from Aaron to serve in this position from the priest. Now, the reason we bring this up is because of the conversation that the Hebrew writer has already had and that we have in our day of, of Jesus Christ being a priest, a, a high priest, in fact. And if you were Jewish, that is a, a pretty strong thing to swallow because it was under the Mosaic law, unlawful. And what the writer does in chapter number 7 is he builds the case of the need for a different kind of priest. And he does so here by stating one fact, and that is the continuation of priests from generation to generation meant that the priesthood was not permanent. They died and were no longer qualified. Secondly, not only do you see that in contrast of Christ who is described as having an indestructible life in verse number 16 the priests were not able to perfect the people they represented before God look at verse number 11 with me speaking of the the priesthood Levitical priesthood now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood for under it the people received the law what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron. Again, he says in verse number 18, For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. He's not saying, he's not arguing that the Old Testament priest system and sacrificial system was, was not good. What he's saying is it, it could not do what Christ did for us 
in the New Testament in his service to God. You see that by the continual offering up of sacrifices. This is a perpetual act. It, it never did satisfy. It could never make one perfect or righteous before God. No cultic practice was, was the exact answer, the one exercise that you do to, to get it right and, and be right. It was never meant to do that. It was meant to lead us to another sacrifice, which he argues later on in the book. But thirdly, the problem, the problem rests not only in their inability to make the worshiper perfect and, and absolve us from all of our sins, but it rests in the fact that they themselves are not perfect. They're just like us, fallen men who served in that particular role under Aaron, who in all weakness had to offer up sacrifices for themselves before they could ever ever minister to the people of God. And so he's, he's setting this case, this idea of this priesthood, Levitical priesthood, but how that Jesus is much better, greater. Now we've already seen in the book of Hebrews in chapter number 2, chapter number 5, that he is a, a faithful high priest, a, a sympathetic high priest, able to sympathize with us in our weakness and in our temptation. And, and following that naturally, he says that we are able to come to find grace and help in our time of need. And, and so he's continuing to build that case after he took a detour of saying, now, by the way, this is hard to understand. And some of us might say, amen, after saying it's hard to understand what he said following about warnings. It's pretty hard to understand as well. But nevertheless, he wants to remind us that there is a far better priest. And that far better priest is found in Jesus. Now, if you were a Jew, you might ask, oh, this is just out of the ordinary. This is not normal. And so what the writer does in a, in a unique fashion, by the inspiration of God, he pins points and says, what do you mean there was never a priest that wasn't of the sons of Aaron? What about Melchizedek? Now, some of you are probably like me at my last point after writing his name out 40 times being spell-checked. Every time I wrote it, I finally spelled it right once without help. And you're like, who is this guy and why does he matter? He takes up a space of, of three verses in the book of Genesis, chapter number 14. Very obscure figure. There's more questions around him than there is answers. A thousand years later, the Psalms picks him up again in Psalms 110. And then now the Hebrew builds a whole doctrine. Hebrew writer builds a whole doctrine off of him on several chapters about how he's like Christ. That brings us back to what he is doing here. And he is bringing us into this this uh, view of the Old Testament, looking through the lens of the Old Testament through typology or through types in the Old Testament. Now, there's several ways to interpret your Bibles. One of the ways which uh, was very popular during the, the early church fathers was allegorical. That means you just take everything that you can and through creativity and imagination, you, you, you stick a meaning to it. Uh, and really, when you read... Origen or, or Gregory the Great. I said that name once and somebody thought I was talking about Greg Bastian. <laughs> Gregory the Great. But uh, anyway, when you read those guys, you think how creative they are. I mean, one guy writing against that approach of uh, interpreting the scripture says, surely tent pegs in the tabernacle really meant to hold the tent up instead of building a doctrine off every little thing. So there was a lot of creativity to that. It is used, and I would say it should be used very sparingly. 
But another form of understanding the Old Testament is to, to understand that Christ, though not explicitly mentioned, in other words, by name Jesus Christ in the Old Testament, you don't see that. You see, you see shadows of him all throughout the Old Testament. That's what a type is. It's a shadow pointing to the actual object. Jesus uses that illustration in John chapter number 3 when he says, as the, as the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness. And those of you familiar with your Bibles are reminded of the sin of the Israelites and God judged them, casting serpents or, or serpents coming and biting them, poisonous serpents. And so, so Moses lifts up a bronze serpent. Those that look to the serpent will live. And so Jesus is simply saying, just as that was the case, he will be the one who is lifted up. And those who look to him will live. Of course, there's many examples we see of that, both of figures and events. The Passover lamb in which God would spare his judgment on those to whom the blood is applied. How can you not see Christ in the midst of that? And so, likewise, he brings us to this this obscure figure in the Old Testament saying that here is one who foreshadows, testifies to, or points to the real king of righteousness, the real king of peace, that is Jesus himself, Melchizedek being that kind of an example. And you can turn to Genesis chapter number 14 with me, and we'll look at that uh, passage. Melchizedek is an interesting figure, as we have already said, other than the just fun to say his name so you can go home on your way home and just practice that between one another in your ride. Whether it's Kizadek or Chizadek or tomato, tomato, however you do that. Some have suggested this figure in the Old Testament is an angelic being. You see why they would say that as you get in Hebrews where he says he has no mother or father, no genealogy, no beginning, no ending. I mean, he's, he just comes out of nowhere and he goes off to nowhere. And, and so, you know, evidently somewhere in that process, he must be an angelic being. Others suggest, and even speaking with someone this week, suggested that this is a pre-incarnate Christ. What do we mean by that? Well, we mean that, that Christ shows up. Not Jesus Christ and the, the person that's walking in, in the New Testament, but the person, God, showing up in the Old Testament in various forms. We see the angel of the Lord and those things like that. And, and they say, well, this is what this is. This is the pre-incarnate Christ coming and showing himself to Abraham. I don't think that is the case. I don't think Scripture supports that at all. Um, that does not take away the the things that revolve around him as we come to read in Genesis chapter number 14. I think he was a real man uh, who was in the service of God and whom God blessed and whom he did not share anything else about him of these three verses. And so he tells us, beginning in verse number 18, after uh, Abraham comes back from battle, uh, rescuing Lot and all the spoils and the people that uh, that had been taken off into ca- captivity. Verse number 18 says, And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine, and he was a priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hands. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. And that's it. That's all it says about him. And yet you you are like me, uh, intriguing. You, you do your daily Bible reading and you go on about life and you get fascinated in Joseph and Jacob and all these other figures. And, 
and your mind kind of drifts away from Melchizedek until you get to Hebrews chapter number 7. He says, no, he, is, he, he, he reminds us a lot of Jesus. He reminds us a lot of Jesus. If you were wondering if there was a priest outside of that here, come see this man, Melchizedek. And going back to Hebrews, if you want to turn back with me there, Hebrews chapter number 7. Not only is he a priest of the Most High God, which in itself is fascinating for our imaginations to run wild, but he is arguing here that he is a greater priest or he is greater than the Levitical priesthood. Greater than the Levitical priesthood. And he does so by arguing, first of all, he is greater in his name and titles. Look at verse number 2 with me of chapter number 7. Verse number 2 says, And to Abraham um, he appointed a tenth part of everything. He first, by translation of his name, his name meaning king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. Now, he is referring to Melchizedek, but he is trying to point us beyond this central figure. He's not doing an exegesis necessarily of Melchizedek, but he is, he is declaring what he, he understands of Melchizedek so that we might have an exegesis of who Jesus is, that great high priest. And first of all, he says, like Melchizedek, he is the king of righteousness. The king of righteousness. Just to remind you in the book of Isaiah, speaking of the Messiah who would come, that he would be the suffering servant in chapter number 53. But verse number 11 of that chapter, God calls him his righteous one, my servant. He is the righteous one. He is the servant of the Lord. He goes on to say, and he will make many to be accounted righteous and shall bear their iniquities. In verse number 11, here we see the king who would come, Jesus, who would be the righteous one. Scripture testifies to that, doesn't it? When he says that he knew no sin. There was nothing that, that could stick to him. There was no uh, false or there was no accusation, no, no um, distortion in his character, no sinfulness about him whatsoever. He was the righteous one. But more than that, he's, he's showing that he is the king of righteousness, telling us in Isaiah chapter 9, verse number 7, that he will himself rule and his kingdom will be marked by righteousness. Let me read that for you. His kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth forevermore. Isn't that what we long for in our day? Isn't that what we're crying out? Justice, righteousness, truth. We're so confused as to what it is, all that means. And, and the Bible says here is one who is coming whose kingdom is marked by righteousness. He is the king of righteousness. He himself being righteous and his kingdom is marked by righteousness, even so much that it says in Revelation chapter number 19, verse number 11, that his judgment will be one of righteousness. He says, Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. No one will ever stand before the bar of Christ. No one will ever stand before him and say, You are unjust. Your verdict is wrong or false. He judges truthfully and rightly. And, and even as he 
judges this world and the and the injustices of this world and the sin of this world and the rejection of salvation and the rejection of God as he stands and and makes war with that he does so righteously and in righteousness the problem is most times as we said our, our view of righteousness is skewed and yet here we're brought to one who is right who judges rightly who does what is right but more than that, beloved, we're, we're brought to see righteousness not only in his, his person and who he is and in his kingdom and, and in his judgment as he, as he comes to make war. But we see that he is his people's righteousness. That's the joy of coming to, to see that our high priest is the righteous king, that he himself is his people's righteousness. You remember what he said at the end of verse number 11 of Isaiah 53. And my servant will make many to be accounted righteousness. He shall bear their iniquity. You know that verse in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21. Namely that he that knew no sin became sin that we might become the what? The righteousness of God. Philippians 3, Paul, Paul struggling with his former pursuit of righteousness and futility. And he says, he, he forgets all of that, that he may have that righteousness which is by faith. And that is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That, that imputed righteousness given to those who, who come to him by faith. He's saying there's a righteousness which, which theologians describe as, as kind of a covering. That as we stand before God, we stand before him rightly covered, not in our own goodness, amen, but in the goodness of Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And it is in him we are declared, we are made, we are covered right, righteous before him. It is his robe which we wear, his covering which clothes us. He is the righteous one. But he goes on not only this this righteous king in verse number two, but he says he is the king of peace. Speaking of Salem, which later on would be Jerusalem, where David would set up the central part of the kingdom uh, of the of the Jews of the Israel in the Old Testament. And saying that here Christ himself is the king of peace. And we know that in the Old Testament, don't we? In Isaiah 9, again, going back to that, that promise of the Messiah who would come and he would be called the Prince of one, The Prince of Peace. The Prince of Peace. He is the one and he speaks about the increase of his government. Verse number 7 of that chapter. And the peace there will be no end. You know, Jesus is coming to make peace. The end result of all that he does in creation is to bring back the tranquility and the harmony of his creation back as it was in the Garden of Eden. As you see in Revelation, the the conclusion of all that takes place out out of Revelation, the judgments, the seals, all of that is to bring about a final and lasting peace. He says, Behold, I make a new heavens and a new earth, and all that devils it, all the, all the horror and the sorrow and all of the wars and bickering and fighting and, and injustices, none of that will be allowed in. It will be a time of peace. I don't mean sitting on a cloud with a heart, but you know what I mean. Tranquility and harmony both with God and your neighbor. That he is coming to make and he will bring about a lasting peace. But you and I both know just as righteousness is, he is the one who has made peace now between us and God. 
For he says in, in Romans chapter number 5, we looked at last week briefly, that now we have peace with God. He himself becomes our peace. But not just that, we, we go on to understand peace. Not, not only does he become our peace, but he gives us peace in the most ridiculous situations. You might not like how I said that. I probably shouldn't have said it that way. But he says he gives us peace that passes all understanding, doesn't he? Reminding us that our great high priest is the, the author and the giver of the peace which he, he rules over. But he goes on and says not only in his name, not only in his title, but he says he is greater in his eternal priesthood. Verse number 3. Speaking of Melchizedek, he is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. Now, now what we come here and we say, surely this is an angel or, or messianic figure or something like that. I don't think that is the case. I think he had a mom and dad. I think he died somewhere. He was born somewhere. But I think God just didn't want to tell us where. Because I think God knew a struggling group of Christians later on in the first century would have to come to understand what does it mean that Jesus, who is from the line of Judah, would be a priest. And he says, well, let me give you a figure I, I gave you a peek at in the Old Testament, the book of Genesis, Melchizedek. He says, who has no genealogy. And basically what he's saying is that God saw no fit to tell us where he was from and who his parents were. His priesthood didn't rest in his, his birthright but rather in the goodness and the favor of God set upon him. He's saying, likewise, Christ receives that priesthood, as we've already said, and we'll mention later on, by an oath. Who has genealogy, neither genealogy, and he says he resembles the Son of God. He is not the Son of God, but he is like him. He, is, he resembles the Son of God. But notice the emphasis here isn't, isn't just his genealogy and all the stress on that, but is that his priesthood will never end. Aaron died, and the high priest was passed along. His son and his grandsons, and, his, and it goes on and on. They all died, and it was passed on, and and it was never it never fixed the problem. Israel kept sinning and kept sinning and kept sinning and, and kept messing up. And he says, No, here is one priest who will never lay down his robe. One who is eternal, who always and will ever stand as a priest over his people. And that's good news for you and me. That he ever stands to make intercession for the saints is what the Bible says. That he is ever standing to, to represent us before God. That he is always present and ready to welcome us in the presence of God and intercede on our behalf. That he always lives in that state, in that capacity. He is an eternal priest forever. Forever. You hate saying goodbyes, don't you? And things just don't, they don't last. Even things that say they have a lifetime warranty. What does that mean? A year? Like six months if you're lucky? Uh, things are hard and changes is hard in life. And yet he says there are some things that are constant. And one, the person who stands and represents us before God will always stand and represent us before God for all eternity. He is forever a priest for his people. And that is great comfort for you and, you and me this morning. He says, by virtue of verse number 16, let's just read that. Look at it with me. He, or who has, speaking of Jesus, become a priest, not in the basis of legal requirements concerning bodily descent. In other words, you know he wasn't, he wasn't a Levite or from Aaron, but by the power of an indestructible life. He died 
on the cross. But beloved, he did not stay dead. Death did not have the final word over him. He proved himself indestructible as his father raised him from the dead and he raised from the dead by his own power and might. He says he is a priest forever. But thirdly, notice he says he is greater in priesthood because he received honor from Abraham. And that's the discussion we see as he goes on in in verse number four. See how great this man was whom Abraham the patriarch paid or gave a tenth of his spoils. We read that in Genesis. He comes back from battle with all the spoils. And as he meets this king of Salem, uh, priest of the Most High God, Abraham gives him a tenth. He honors him. He gives to him a, a thanksgiving offering for the deliverance of God in his own life. And he, and he honors him in this way by giving him this, this tithe as mentioned here in verse number 4, which just simply means a tenth. And he's saying if Abraham, who is arguably the greatest figure in the Old Testament, second to Moses, or, or, you know, there's a good tie there, the greatest figure in the Old Testament, father of the, of the nation of Israel, if he, if he gave and submitted to Melchizedek, saying that Melchizedek was greater than him, then don't you think the Aaronic priesthood, don't you think they're less than Christ, who is like Melchizedek? Who, who though not being born, if Abraham's greater than his son Levi and greater than Aaron, and he submits like that, if, if Christ is like Melchizedek, then, then Aaron himself has humbled and submitted to, to Jesus and showing the greatness of this one who has, has come greater than this Levitical priest. Now, I know this is somewhat foreign to us, Jesus is greater than Aaron. We know that. We get that. That's great. Was, many of us were raised up in church. We heard that. We don't have any problem with that. Abraham paid tribute to, to Melchizedek. That's great. I mean, it's far removed from us. We don't live like that. We don't think like that. But if you was a first century Jewish person who was struggling with going back to Judaism and offering up sacrifices again and, and all the ceremonial rites that came with being in Jews, this was fundamental to understand. And what he's telling these struggling Christians who live in this temptation is, I want you to see, I want you to understand that Christ is much greater than what you left. And I think that's something we can get, at least in, in part, that, that even, even our own sin, even our own past in this life, Christ is much greater than anything we left behind when you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. When he calls you to repent, he's not telling you to downsize. You're upsizing to the glory and the magnificence and the goodness and superiority of what's found in Jesus Christ. He's telling these, don't you understand? Christ is much better. The Jews would have understood that, that the priests were a provision from God. And in some way, not only a provision from God, but a connection to God. Their whole cultic practice revolved around this. They stood and served on behalf of their worshipers. 
But all of them who had ever lived, all of them who had ever served are, are pointing us to this one central figure, that is Jesus Christ, and everything revolving around who he is and what he's done. He's simply saying that, that is true in the Old Testament, your familiarity, all that, but don't you see the provision of God, the connection of God now is rooted and founded in Jesus Christ? And that's what all these other priests were trying to point you to. This one figure... It's true with us that the provision of God for us, the access to God for us is rooted in Christ, not in a, in a priesthood through some denomination, not through going through confessions or taking, taking mass or any of those things that we have in our day and, or Ouija boards or reading the stars or all that stuff that we try to figure out what, what's going to go on. It, it's found in Jesus. And he's trying to nail this down. Because to turn away from him and to, to, to embrace something else, to run off to something else, is, is to, to lose sight of God's gift to us, his provision to us. I, you know, I know that we do in our day, and it's worth stating this. I probably have, have said it before, but we can fall into hero worship in our day, can't we? I know in the reform circles many times we can... We can hold the reformers to some place of idolizing them. You know, well, Luther said this, and Luther said that, and Calvin said this, and Charles Spurgeon, who turned 187 yesterday, by the way. <laughs> I don't know if you told him happy birthday, but he's in heaven. You know, and all that goes on. But it isn't just reform people, is it? We, we follow people on Instagram. We have what, what has often been coined probably rightfully so, but, but painfully so, celebrity pastors. It's all about what they say and what they do and how they are and all this other stuff like this. And we have to be careful with that. I need not remind you that any of those servants of God, if they have benefited the church at any point, it is because they've shown this, the magnificent, the superiority, the greatness the significance of who Christ is and who they served. It's like John the Baptist, whom Jesus said, born of a woman, there was no greater prophet. How would you like that said of you? And here's a man who would lose his head. And yet he made that bold statement in the book of John, didn't he, where he must increase, speaking of Jesus, and I must decrease. Why? Well, for the very same reason the Hebrew writers is pointing these people back to the fact that don't you see the greatness of your Savior? Don't you see the greatness of who He is and what He is for you? Standing there in your behalf, there's none like Him. None like Him. He goes on not only because of His, his greatness of Abraham honoring Him, but because He is the one who blessed Abraham and not the other way around. It's Father's Day. Happy Father's Day, by the way. I said that once, didn't I? You should buy your father a cordless drill or something. I don't know. See, we've got an amen, finally. I just got to, I got to find the, the, the notes to hit here. Um, and you want to honor him. You want to bless him. I, I mean, for the most part, those of you that still can. Uh, do that in that way, some through memory, some through thankfulness. I, I sent my dad $40 to take yourself out to eat. That's the easiest way to do it. He's on vacation, so I don't envy him. Uh, any. 
But isn't it true, the Bible teaches, that it's always the father who blesses the children? Jacob didn't rise up in his old age and wait for his sons to stand around and bless him. In chapter 49 of Genesis, we read that he, he begins calling his children by name, pronouncing a blessing upon them. The greater blesses the lesser. Isaac blessing his children. Of course, they, you know, there was a little swap going on there. But nevertheless, it's still that same promise. Do you know, it reminds us that it is God who blessed Abraham and not Abraham who blessed God. He says to Abraham, I will bless you and, and through you I will bless the world. And those who bless you I will bless and those who curse you I will curse. You know, you read that great promise of God. But it's God who's doing the blessing. Showing that God is greater than Abraham. And here in this little snapshot, he's saying, don't you see Melchizedek was standing there over Abraham in whatever way you want to look at that. And he was, he was pronouncing a blessing on Abraham, showing that he was greater than Abraham. And I know it's hard for us to imagine that. He's saying that's the way it was. And he's saying, don't you understand that Christ is greater? He is the one who blesses. In fact, the, the priest in, in Numbers chapter uh, number 6 were called by Moses to stand over the people of God. And they, they would lift their arms. Some denominations do this as they, they go out. And, and he says, Speak to the sons of Aaron, saying, Thus, you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you, and the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. Don't you love that? It's one of my favorite passages in all the Bible. Let us see your face, God, your favor, your smile of God. That's what he's calling for here. And the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. The priest, sons of Aaron, would bless, proclaim a blessing. What the New Testament tells us that Christ not only proclaims a blessing over his people, but he himself is the source of blessing over his people. And if you know Christ this morning, you are truly blessed. Life may be difficult. It may be hard. You may have, have all kinds of things going on in your life, stress and worry and all that stuff like that. But, but we come to find this one who is the fountain of all blessing, and that is Jesus Christ himself. Now, if someone sneezes, we say, God bless you. Some of us don't say that, and we kind of shorten it because we've got a short attention span. We just say, bless you. Bless you. God bless you. See, that was good. We worked on that. It took us a long time. But there's no blessing in the Word of God and from the hand of God that does not flow through His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ. But what we come to find out, and not in narrow view, what he read, Greg read this morning opening up, is that every spiritual blessing in heavenly places is given to us through Christ Jesus. Every spiritual blessing through him and in him. Well, some are fascinated in the early church of the priest and going back and all the things that they had. Hebrews says, you miss the blessing of God if you miss Christ. He is the one who blesses us. And, and you know that church, I don't have to say that. You know that this morning God has blessed us as a church. Amen. And if you've been saved any length of time, he is your blessing. Not just what comes from his hand. Oh, that's good though, isn't it? But he himself is your blessing. 
I was, I was reminded of a service I was at just recently that the, the, the talk revolved around God a lot. And, and God was mentioned a lot. But Christ was not missing. He was not mentioned at all. And I felt like we missed the blessing of what God has to tell us because he says, no, look to Christ and receive all that. All the blessings are ours in him. He is greater. He is eternal. He is our righteousness and our peace. And let me just say this morning, if you don't know him, the Hebrew writer isn't trying to get us to define Christ in, in certain categories just so that we might know of certain few things. He's trying to strengthen our confidence that when you come to him, he is sufficient. He is satisfying for our deepest need. It, it is in him. He is trying to tell these people and he's trying to tell us this morning. It is in coming to know Christ that we come to understand what salvation is, what the gospel is all about. And, and he's really encouraging us in that moment, not just to learn a few facts and sit through some study and maybe figure out how to spell Melchizedek, but he's trying to say, come to Christ. This is who is offering you life. And if you don't know him this morning, that's the offer to you in the gospel. Come to him. Because it is in Jesus that we receive all these things. It is in him that we have life. It is in him that we have a future. It is in him we have hope. Isn't that true, church? And he's saying, come to him. And to those of us who are struggling, he's reminding us to be encouraged. Not to think of our sorrows and suffering as little or trivial, but to be encouraged in the midst of them that you're faithful high priest will stand and will be sufficient in your time of need. Come to him boldly to the throne of grace. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time this morning for your goodness to us. Thank you for, thank you for your word, even the, even the interesting and sometimes difficult places. Lord, thank most of all for your son, the gift to us. I pray for those here this morning, those who are on the fence and never put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Oh, what a faithful high priest he is. I pray that they would even now, that they would turn from their sins and receive this one who has come to die for them and to give them everlasting life. And Father, for all of us, I just pray that we would be encouraged and reminded again of the goodness of our Savior. What a joyous thought as we spend the rest of this day. In Jesus' name, amen.